Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks for joining us. I've got a bit of a cold, but not during the interview portion, just my opener-closer bit. So you'll only have to endure that for a couple minutes. But I'm so excited, and I hope you can hear that in my voice, to share this conversation with you with Franklin Covey's Scott Jeffrey Miller. Tell you what, we've had a couple Franklin Covey people on the show, and they bring the goods. Scott is talking about how to prevent management messes, and you're going to learn, one, why making the time for one-on-one meetings is truly worth it. Two, three foundational principles for listing well. Three, how to flourish as a leader by practicing the law of harvest. If you want to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items we've referenced, they're over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep464. Now here's Scott's story. Scott Jeffrey Miller is Executive Vice President of Business Development and Chief Marketing Officer for Franklin Covey. Scott has been with the company for 20 years and previously served as Vice President of Business Development and Marketing. His role as Executive Vice President and Chief Marketing Officer caps 12 years on the front line, working with thousands of client facilitators across many markets and countries. So thanks to Scott for spending some time with us and thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. Working remotely can be a challenge, especially for teams that are new to it. How do you deal with your work environment being the same as home while staying connected and productive? And then there's your newest coworker, the cat. Well, your friends at Trello have been powering remote teams globally for almost a decade. At a time when teams must come together more than ever to solve big challenges, Trello's here to help. Trello, part of Atlassian's collaborative suite, is an app with an easy-to-understand visual format plus tons of features that make working with your team functional and just plain fun. Trello keeps everyone organized and on the same page, helping teams communicate, focus, and connect. Teams of all shapes and sizes at companies like Google, Fender, Costco, and likely your favorite neighborhood coffee shop all use Trello to collaborate and get work done. Try Trello for free and learn more at Trello.com. That's T-R-E-L-L-O.com. Trello.com. Here is Scott. Scott, thanks for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. Pete, my pleasure. Thanks for the invite. Oh, yeah. I think we're going to have a ton of fun. And I want to start at the beginning with your first leadership experience and the tale of having a bit of a management mess. Yeah, I didn't say I wanted to. (laughs) It's the start of the book, right? Is I, like most leaders, was promoted to be a leader without really any training, right? I was a fairly competent individual producer, the top salesperson at the time. And unfortunately, that's usually the criteria, for someone being promoted into a leadership position is you were doing your individual contributor job well, so you must be of leadership talent, which of course is, you know, absurd. So uh, I share in the story lots of horrifying scenarios, but do you want me to walk you through the first one? I would. I love it. The more horrifying, the better, please. Well, that's my specialty, (laughs) Pete. So so let's see. I was a couple of years into my role here at Franklin Covey as a salesperson selling leadership solutions to universities, colleges, school districts. And I got promoted to be over the team, like the team that the day before me were, were my peers and friends. And so that's never, an, that's never a comfortable position. And I decided that I wanted my legacy to make sure that all of my colleagues and my new sales team had an adequate understanding of our new solution. So I arranged and got the budget and organized the conference room to have a two-day professional development training. 
and really enculturate the new sales team, my new sales team, into our newest solution. Hired a consultant, first day show up, everybody comes in 15, 20 minutes later. I was incensed. I mean, after all, we are a productivity time management company at heart, right? Oh, that's right. Yes. That's not putting uh, first things first. Well, that's not, see, I'm sure there's some habits and principles we can point to violations. I'm sure we violate a lot of things. <laughs> well, they were putting, they were just putting their first things oh, first, not me. Zing. Okay. <laughs> so, you know, they kind of stroll in, you know, 15, 20 minutes late. And I was incensed, right? I mean, I was, I was productive. I was uh, vigilant. I was probably pretty, um, pretty suffocating. So anyway, we, we start the program and then, I was like, I was just really irritated all day long. So that night I decide the next morning I'm going to show them, you know, there's a new sheriff in town, quite frankly. So I go (laughs) and my genius and my leadership finest moment genius, I go to the supermarket and I buy like 15 copies of the Salt Lake Tribune. The next morning, sure enough, everybody comes in 10, 15 minutes late. And I am just like, I will not be disrespected, right? That's my mentality. I walk around the room before the program starts and I throw down on the table in front of everybody the classified job ads from the Tribune. And I Uh-oh. say with great flair, if you want a job from nine to five, Dillard's is hiring. And then I gave them a highlighter to highlight the roles they want, which, which I thought was be like, I thought it was inspiring and you should want to work here and oh. look. And it just, of course, it was, you know, idiotic, right? And it was insulting and emasculating and The horror story is that it took me a couple of days to understand that what I had done was, you know, just, you know, just, just so immature and to the opposite of what a principled, mature leader would do. And the good news is, as I mentioned in the book, a decade later, I get married, literally a decade later, almost to a T, every one of those people who either quit on the spot threatened to quit, threatened to sue me, threatened to have me fired, whatever it was. They're all at my wedding. We're laughing at the horror of it all. And so the story ends well, but it's just one of those examples of what I thought in my mind was a fine leadership example was just, you know, idiocy. Yeah. Well, it's so funny. I don't know why that tale just brings up a scene. Well, I guess it's the famous Alec Baldwin scene from Glen Gary, Glenn Ross. I guess <laughs> you skipped some of the profanity <laughs> and the demeaning insults, but it's dramatic in terms of, all right, I'm not messing around here. This I'm laying down the law. Well, Scott, if I could just give you a, an opportunity to have a do-over and rewind time. How would you have approached that situation today? You know, folks are late. You feel disrespected. What do you do? Well, I know what I would do. I would sit down on the table in front of them and say, hey, guys, ladies, gents, so glad we're all here. We've got a great two days ahead of us. I've noticed that um, we've got a couple of things we want to tighten up. One is I noticed that this morning, perhaps the start time wasn't clear. I, I really want to make sure we establish a culture of respect and discipline And you know how much we all like to be punctual. It's kind of what our brand is. We want to model for our clients and for each other that we live our content, right? I mean, we are a time management consulting company. So I'm going to ask that everybody be really diligent on respecting the start and end times. So if you'll respect the start times, I'll respect the end times. And if we need to start later and go later, I'm fine with that. But let's just set down some ground rules. And if we think that, you know, we should be a little more free on some things and tighter on others, I'm open to that. And I I would have absolutely had it be a conversation, not dictatorial. I would have not made it as big a deal. At the same time, I would have said, this is kind of important to me. 
Because I think how we treat each other is how we treat our clients. How we treat the consultant today is how we want our consultants to be treated by our clients. So I, I would have had a, a very comfortable dialogue, no theatrics, no grand gestures, no purchasing of classified ads. I would have gotten my point across just as well, if not better, with no theatrics. I dig it. Okay, well, while we're here, I'll just get to follow up one more time. Let's say, all right, next day, you got two stragglers. What's the game plan? You know, I would probably call them out, maybe not in public. It would depend upon now the rapport that I had with the team. At the time, I didn't have rapport. I was, you know, I was their peer literally the day before. And now I'm sort of like the swagger. So I think it depends on the scenario. I might have called them aside. I might have texted them and said, hey, I know you're late this morning. I'm guessing something came up. Um, do me a favor. And if you're going to be late in the future, just give me a heads up. So I might have held the program for you. I mean, I think now I would have suspend judgment more and not jump to a wrong conclusion. I would assume assume good intent. I would assume they weren't trying to, you know, flagrantly violate my, you know, new stature, right? So I think as I have matured, I'm less suspicious. I'm more gracious and forgiving and give people a chance to rise to the occasion versus expect them to violate some petty rule that might be important in the moment, but isn't valuable long-term to the culture of the team. I mean, at the end of the day, who cares if you start five minutes late in the grand scheme of a career, right? I, I think I just have matured and I've identified what's really important and what's kind of petty urgent. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, I imagine you've made a number of discoveries <laughs> in, in terms of what makes effective leadership in your own career and being surrounded by the folks at Franklin Covey and uh, putting together your book, Management Mess to Leadership Success. So could you maybe share, is there particular insight or discovery that has been most transformational for you personally? Yeah, it's very clear to me. So I've been in the firm for 23 years and you would expect as an officer of the firm now, I'd be a great leader, right? And nobody's a complete mess and no one's a complete success. Leadership of people, I don't think came naturally to me. I think I've gotten much better over the decades, but I was a star individual performer and I had to realize that the skills that make you a great dental hygienist or digital designer or salesperson rarely don't translate over into leadership of people. So there has to be a major paradigm shift. You can't be the star anymore. It isn't all about you. It isn't you hogging the spotlight. So I had to make a fundamental paradigm shift around what was important to me. And did I have the humility did I have the confidence to let other people shine and even sometimes shine past me, get promoted over me, earn more money than me? It takes a very secure, confident, humble person to lead people. And I think for me, the biggest lesson on how to get there was, Pete, the value of relationships. When Dr. Covey was alive, he passed seven years ago, our co-founder, he was constantly reminding me about the difference between having an efficiency mindset and an effectiveness mindset. And it's what I, something I have struggled with my entire life as it relates to relationships with people. 
And that is, I'm a very efficient person. I like to talk fast, think fast. I mow the lawn fast. I rake the lawn fast. I'm at Home Depot at five o'clock on a Saturday morning before the staff even opens the doors to buy the flowers, to plant them by 6.30. I like to get things done. And that's served me very well in life. I, I have no apologies for being an efficient human being. But when it comes to relationships with people, one of my favorite quotes from Dr. Covey is this concept of, with people, slow is fast and fast is slow. So we're, what works well with me planting pansies and you know begonias in the garden does not work well leading people. I have to move into an effectiveness mindset. It's fine to be efficient with systems and even some meetings and even some conversations. But the vast majority of leadership is about building culture, respecting people, and that cannot be rushed. And I have to consciously slow down, check in, get off of my own timeline and my own agenda and not try to quote, check people off my list. It is a, it is a challenge for me. It's not natural. And when I rise to the occasion of slowing down, the result is always better. I start at kind of mess and have to consciously think of success when it comes to relationships. You know, I, I resonate with that and I do like efficiency and, <laughs> and blazing, uh, blazing speeds whenever possible. It just feels really good. And then it feels like there's like a huge list of everything that demands your attention. So let's dig into that. That is one of your challenges in the book is making time for relationships. So let's dig into that. How slow is fast and fast is slow when it comes to relationships. And here's some stories and practices to bring that to life. Well, first, I think it's a mindset also. It's right. Is do you really see yourself as a leader of people versus a leader of strategies, a leader of budget, a leader of outcomes? I think it's just, you know, to check in to say, do I really care about the team that I lead, the division I lead? You know, the fact of the matter is, Pete, most of us recognize in our careers, we tend to spend more time at work with our colleagues than we do awake with our family and friends. And when that is the case for most of us, we want to slow down and, and, and really develop quality relationships with people. Because as all the, all the stats show, people don't quit their jobs. They quit their boss, according to Gallup, and they quit their culture. And a leader's number one job is to, in my opinion, retain and recruit quality talent above everything else, even above setting vision, strategy, systems, stakeholders, return to investors. I mean, your job is to recruit and retain talent. And it all comes down to, you know, do you have a high trust culture? Are you respected? Are you trusted? You know, you may not always be liked as a leader. In fact, you probably rarely will be liked. But if you build rapport with your people, you make it safe for them to admit their messes. You admit your own messes to really understand that, you know, your number one job is to connect with people and make them want to come to work, make them not want to accept the recruiter call, which by the way, they're getting every day. If you don't think your people are being poached, I mean, you're in a, you're in a cave. It's a war on talent right now. And if people like their, their leader, they think you have their back, that you establish what I would call a pre-forgiveness environment. It was taught to me by one of my leaders, which is you're going to make mistakes. You're going to screw up. So let's just pre-forgive you. Doesn't give you the right to now go out and just be a train wreck, 
but you're going to make some mistakes. Let's, no one wants to live in fear. And I think at the end of the day, have you connected and slow down with your people? I, I read once a great leadership tactic. And it was when someone comes into your office, if you're wearing glasses, take them off, put them on the table. If you've got a phone, turn it over and put it down. If you've got a laptop, close the laptop and just like, like are almost artificially overly check into the person. Those subtle things are noticed and people will remember them. And now it sounds, it sounds kind of technique and it is, but I think it becomes a habit and a practice and people feel that people quit their bosses or people stay with their leaders because they feel inspired and validated and trusted and empowered. And those aren't cultural buzzwords. Those are real things that people can taste and feel. Mm-hmm. Whew, yeah, I dig what you're saying here. That's all ringing true and resonating. So I want to hear a little bit, if folks are in a place, let's talk about slow being fast with people. And if there's some leaders, and, and I'm more so junior leaders in terms of our listeners, it's about 50-50 in terms of those who have direct reports and those who don't and those who unofficially, you know, are influencing without authority, you know, project managing stuff. So that's so kind of the, the ball game. We got some executives, but more so early leaders in the listener crowd. So if folks are feeling kind of overwhelmed by all the things on their plate, all the goals and to-do list items that are there, and they're worried that they, quote, don't have time to do a one-on-one with everybody, for example, how would you counter-argue that? Well, they're probably right. They probably don't have time, but they also don't have, um, they won't have a team because your team will disengage with you. You know, this, this, this concept that you miss, that you talk about, which is this idea, challenge 20, hold regular one-on-ones. It's really a chance to engage with your team. Again, if you believe that your number one job as a leader, not your only job, but your top job is to recruit and retain top talent. And that may not be a yes for you. You may not psychologically, philosophically believe that. I have come to absolutely believe that. The CEO, the CFO, the chief marketing officer, right? Even her job or his job is to recruit and retain talent because people are proud of their brand. So I would set expectations carefully. Don't go announce you're going to all of a sudden have a one-on-one every week with all 14 direct reports. It just, you're setting yourself up for, for failure. Calibrate expectations. Talk about the value. Understand the value of sitting down with your people, door closed, phone off, laptop down, glasses off, and using it as a chance to, to gauge engagement. In fact, we say that one-on-one should be organized by the other team member. It's their meeting, not your meeting. This is their chance to talk 70% of the time. You talk 30%. They ask questions. You clear the path. You listen about things going on in their life. You know, Pete, everybody's got a mess in their life. Everyone's got a bill that they can't pay. Everyone's got a challenge in their marriage or their relationship with their partner. Everyone's got a kid that's just causing them a nightmare. Everyone's got a sick parent. I mean, everyone's got something going on that is weighing on them, that's distracting them. That's weighing them down. And the more they can trust appropriately in their leader to care, sometimes people just need a leader to listen and understand, you know what? My, my teenage son's got a challenge and I might be coming in late. I promise you I'll make it up. Maybe not in the short term. 
you'd be surprised. Leaders are really forgiving. Generally speaking, if they understand or they know, they're not guessing what's going on. So I don't think you can afford not to take time with your people when there is this, especially with your star performers, when they are being recruited and poached like never likely in history. I mean, I'm shocked at the number of recruiters that are chasing me on LinkedIn. If my CEO knew it, he'd have me at lunch every day. Or maybe he does know it, doesn't want me to stay. (laughs) But that's a good heads up, right? I mean, if you fundamentally believe your job is to retain talent, you'll do this. Let me share one more point. I'm sorry I'm going long. My favorite leadership book ever written is called Multipliers. It's by Liz Wiseman. And I can't evangelize it enough. It's a, it's a game-changing book. I, I think it's arguably better than some of the books that we've written at Franklin Covey. Liz Wiseman was the former, basically, you know, VP of learning at Oracle for 20 years. She left. She's become a friend of mine. And she talks about how multiplying leaders don't have to be the genius in the room. They choose to be the genius maker. They don't have to be the smartest person in the room. They have the humility and the confidence not to always have the answer, always solve the problem, always, you know, trample over someone that they really can create an environment where people can talk and share ideas and share ideas that are half baked or quarter baked. You don't have to choose your words super carefully. That's a, that, that's a leader that creates an environment where people feel safe to take risks and express their ideas. And I think that's a great way to build relationships. You don't have to be the smartest person in the room. You just have to be smart enough to hire the smartest people in the room. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. So I dig that, but I've heard that recommendation before. So it's nice to have some extra oomph behind that book. So tell me, if folks are having trouble making the time, where should we get it? <laughs> How do we get the time? Yeah, well, I mean, it kind of comes down to your own prioritization. I mean, I'd argue that no one is busier than me. I don't wear that as a badge of honor. And I have got to deliberately choose to say no to other things, right? I mean, that's really a a, a chief leadership competency, right? Is this discernment. What are you going to say yes to? What are you going to say no to? Where does it come on your sort of value chain? Are you making high value decisions on how to allocate your time? And, and again, if you fundamentally believe that people are your most important asset, that your culture is your ultimate competitive advantage, which by the way, I evangelize unabashedly that culture is every organization's only competitive advantage that can't be duplicated. Everything else can be stolen, copied, replicated, good enough, but you can't steal or replicate your culture. So how you find the time is in your own mind. What are you going to say no to that has less return than the 30 minutes with Pete this afternoon. I'll tell you the worst one-on-one Pete is not the one that the leader talks the whole time or hijacks the agenda. The worst one-on-one is the one you cancel. Mm -hmm. Because as soon as you cancel (laughs) the first one, now you give them permission to cancel the second one and it's a slippery slope and now you look like a fraud. So that's why I'd say don't overcommit. If you're going to have one-on-ones, announce to your team, hey, I think a great idea would be for us to have one-on-ones. I know, I get it. It's another meeting. No one wants more meetings. Don't think of it as a meeting. Think of it as a conversation, a chance for you to check in with me. You can ask me questions. Are there some things that I can use my 
political clout to clear the path on? Are there some systems that you think maybe I'm overly invested in and it's time to, to challenge them? It's a chance for me to understand what are you struggling with? What are you loving? What's on the horizon for you? You can ask me questions around the company, the strategy. You know, are we being sold? Are we being bought? You know, maybe I can't tell you, but you get the point. <laughs> uh, I think and, and say, you know what? Let's try for them one on one, 30 minutes once a month. If we find that after the first couple of months, I'm able to keep them. You're able to keep them great. Maybe we'll go more frequently, but set expectations low. I had a client once that when they heard me give a speech, this is a publisher. He came up to me and said, oh my gosh, it's the most genius thing, Scott. You've so inspired me. I have 14 direct reports. I'm going to, I'm going to go announce them. No, 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 no. Don't announce anything. Do not announce anything because you're going to set yourself up for major disappointment. You're going to kill your brand. Sit down with your assistant and think out methodically. Can you really do 14 of them? You know, can you do, because we get into this habit where we overcommit ourselves. The first one goes great. The second one goes really well. The third one goes pretty good. The fourth one is taxing. And then they're like, oh, crap. This is just like killing my day, right? Um, so ease into it. Mm-hmm. That's good. That's good. All right. Well, we talked about some high value stuff. You've laid out 30 different challenges in your book. Which one or two would you say is just exceptionally high return for the investment of time, energy, attention you put into it? You know, when I wrote this book, which by the way now is uh, a number one Amazon new release bestseller for three weeks in a row, I'm super proud of that because I think the world was ready for a different kind of leadership book, one a little more relatable, raw, and uh, messy, so to speak, because leadership is messy. We started out with 30, uh, well, about 130 challenges, put them all up on the, on the, on the wall, sticky notes that we thought leaders face. Of course, that's a suicide mission, right? A book with 130 challenges. So we narrowed it down to 30 and we organized them in kind of three tranches, Pete. The first eight are around kind of leading yourself. The next dozen or so are around leading others. And the third about dozen around getting results. The one I think that is probably the most counterintuitive is challenge three. And that's listen first. The reason I think it's so counterintuitive is because by the time you become a leader, you have been well-trained on communicating. You're always in convincing mode, persuading mode. You probably have a big vocabulary. You've mastered your message. You're good at you know setting vision, convincing people. You've mastered the stage and the microphone, on and on. I mean, how many people have had days and days of presentation training, lots of them, PowerPoint, Keynote? How many leaders have had legitimate training on listening. I mean, I'm in the business. I haven't had probably four or five collective hours in 30 years on listening. I mean, it's not called TED Listens. It's called TED Talks, right? I mean, we're <laughs> constantly reinforced about the power of communicating. But I think great leaders are great listeners. It, it is a communication competency. And I think we undermined ourselves because we're always so used to solving problems, peeling the onion, asking great questions. And these things actually aren't great leadership tools. There's a place for that, right? There's a place to get to the bottom of something fast and furious so you can solve it in an emergency or in a crisis. But generally speaking, asking great questions is not showing empathy because your questions are usually based on your own paradigm, your own narrative your own agenda, your own timeline, your own curiosity, 
your own need to know. And people will tell you what they need you to know. So I would really argue and advocate for people to be much for much more mindful of when was the last time that you listened to someone to truly understand as opposed to just reply, fix, solve, and move on. And I could go for a half an hour about listening. It is a total mess for me because I'm well-trained at public speaking. I host two podcasts. I host a radio program like you. I speak for a living, right? And I don't like to listen because people talk too slow. I like to listen <laughs> fast. I like to speak fast. I like to interrupt. I like to get to the, get to the bottom. Ask my wife. My wife does not need me to solve her problem. She needs me to listen, validate her, and understand. My wife's very smart and very competent. She rarely wants me to solve her problem. So I would just remind leaders to be uber hyper aware of your listening skills, your propensity to interrupt, and can you psychologically bring the mental discipline in your next conversation to move off, well, how was it when you had that challenge? What was it like when you faced that situation? And just constantly remind yourself, check back in, check back in, check back in. Listen. Doesn't mean you can't ask some questions, but the more you listen, the more the person will appreciate you and feel like you care about them. Mm -hmm. So that was a long example. Oh, no, I dig it. Now, when you say check back in, you're just talking about mentally inside your own head, That's like right. you're off in your own land and you're bringing it right back. That's right. You're <laughs> thinking about your own experience with that same scenario or well, I never would have let that happen or here's how I would solve it. You have to show enormous intellectual discipline to fight the battle of distraction, to fight the battle of, you know, would you just stop talking and I'll solve your problem for you, right? But most people don't want you to solve their problem. They just want to feel heard. They want to feel loved. They just want to feel listened to. And it may sound kind of touchy-feely, but that's part of leadership. It's just sometimes validating people's frustrations. Mm -hmm. And so you said you could talk for half an hour about listening, but I'd love to go another five minutes. So we talked about, you said, somewhat technique-y, but you know, closing the laptop or putting the phone aside, taking off the glasses, repeatedly checking back in and reorienting your attention away from your own internal dialogue, you know, back to them. What are some of the other kind of foundational, yeah. you know, principles and favorite practices when it comes to listening well? Yeah, I think I'd share three things. One of them I'm, I'm going to repeat. One is you have to fundamentally believe that you care about what this person is going through or believes. It doesn't mean you have to agree with them. It doesn't mean you have to even like them for that matter. Just fundamentally, you know, is 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 what I'm trying to do right now to help them by just listening. Second, resist the temptation to ask questions because most of our questions are probing questions, evaluating questions, interpreting questions. Most of our questions are built so that we can get better context from our own paradigm, mindset, frame of reference, belief window, whatever you want to call it. Most of those questions are really selfish they satisfy your need to know. I mean, here's a good example. When someone says Tina's husband died, honestly, most time our first question is how? Mm. Who cares how? Does it matter if he died by an overdose or hit by a car? It doesn't matter. 
what matters is Tina's probably in pain. And so that's a little bit macabre, I know, but it's an example that I use in the book, right? If you've read that chapter, you know I use an example about someone whose dog died and how we ask all these questions to kind of satisfy our own curiosity. So I would really challenge people. Is your expert machine gun style questioning technique, which is mine, I, I think I use an example of like a, um, a kangaroo boxing with their feet when I'm at a dinner party, right? Question, 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 question. I didn't get the person enough time to answer the question. I'm on to the next question. And so lower your questions. Here's the third. I think if people are at all like me, we all have a propensity to interrupt because according to the famous linguistics professor, Dr. Deborah Tannen from Georgetown University, all of us have some preconceived sense of how long the other person should be talking. Pete might think Scott should talk for 48 seconds and stop. Scott might think Pete should talk for 28 seconds. We all have this sort of built-in idea of how long the other person should be talking. So we start to move off of listening and want to interject and move it onto our timeline. But it's selfish. It's self-serving. So the next time you're tempted to interrupt, which will be today, I want everybody to be mindful. Close your lips gently. Let your top lip touch your bottom lip. Not so it's visible. Just close your lips gently. Because if your lips are closed, you cannot form a word and therefore you can't interrupt. And count to seven. Count to 10. And the odds are that during that time when you choose not to interrupt, the other person will either finish talking, land their point, or maybe even share something especially vulnerable or the crux of the story or divulge their fear. And it's in that time when you're not interrupting that you might actually learn something especially important that when it's time for you to interject, you'll have a more fuller picture of how you could help them. It's actually a great exercise that I strongly advise everybody. Check in mentally. Try to stay off the natural distractions to move off of your task list. What's for dinner? Are you on time for the gym? You know, Do you have enough groceries? Whatever it is, check back in mentally. You may have to do it four or five times during a conversation and really resist the urge to interrupt. You know, I love it when we talk about closing your lips. I mean, that's huge because- <laughs> It's idiotic, right? <laughs> well, no, it's sort of like, it even changes your entire posture because a lot of times, you know, your mental state follows yeah. your physiology and your body posture and such, you know, in terms of, are you raring to get after it and go for a sprint? Are you kind of chilling and laid back and relaxing, reclining? And likewise, is your body poised to chime in or is your body poised to take it in? And then the difference, it can be as small as a millimeter or two. Like, yeah. Is there a gap between your lips or are your lips, in fact, touching each other and closed? I love it. That is good. Well, you got so much good stuff here, Scott. I liked what you had to say about wildly important goals. Can you share with us what are they? How do we identify them and get us all moving toward them? Sure. So in full disclosure, you know, this is not, you know, my original content. In fact, all of these 30 challenges come from Franklin Covey's, you know, leadership intellectual property. This idea was really popularized by Jim Collins in his book, Good to Great. He 
he uh, he quoted this term. He called them BHAGs, right? Big, hairy, mm-hmm. audacious goals. And Jim is a good friend of our CEOs and of our company. In fact, I'm going to see Jim next week in Boulder for a meeting. And he really inspired us in our best-selling book, The Four Disciplines of Execution, which is the number one book in the world when it comes to strategy execution. And in our book at Franklin Covey, we created a version of Jim's BHAGs. We called them WIGs wildly important goals. It's quite simple, but profound. We all have goals, but have you as a leader taken the time and the discipline to elevate what is truly more important than anything else? Meaning like nothing can come at the expense of this getting done. In fact, the same concept can apply in your personal life. And that as a leader, you have several roles. One of them beyond, obviously, retaining and recruiting talent, setting culture, modeling trustworthiness, is communicating clarity around what is most important. And your job is to help to identify with your team what is going to provide disproportionate return to our shareholders, to our customers, to our profit, to our mission. Your job is to say yes. Your job is to say no. Your job is to elevate things that have to happen. We call those a wildly important goal. And everything cannot be a wildly important goal. While you're doing that, you have to make sure that your people understand that this is more important than anything else, but that you've taken the time, Pete, to communicate to them what is their role in achieving this goal? What types of behaviors? Literally, what do you need to see differently from them tomorrow to help achieve this goal? Because likely, if it's a wildly important goal, you haven't accomplished it yet. And everyone is going to need to learn something new or do something different tomorrow to achieve this new goal. So as a leader, don't be afraid to sit down with Pete and say, Pete, let's talk about this. We're going to move our customer retention from 18 to 18. 19% in the next two months. Here's what I think your contribution needs to be to this. Let's look like what kind of training, what kind of support, what are you going to need to do differently so that you can contribute new and better behaviors to this? And by the way, while you're at it, don't just tell everybody else what they need to do differently. Offer up what you're going to do differently. And say, you know what, team, I'm going to ask you all to stretch beyond your skill set. And I want you to know I'm going to lead the parade. I am going to leave the comfort of my office and go out and meet with 10 clients in the next 14 days and really understand what do they need from us or whatever, whatever the solution is, right? You lead out and show people that you're willing to move outside your comfort zone. And then I think beyond all of that, the goal has to be attainable. You have to structure it in a way that people understand, are they winning? And goals should be structured, at least from our pedagogy, if you will, in a from X to Y by win format. We will move customer retention from 18% to 19% by May 31st, 2020. From X to Y by win. And once people are very clear on that, what is the goal? What is the measurement? What is my role in it? What is their role in it? You've got to celebrate it. 
You've got to have it on a scoreboard. It can be hokey. It can be with cotton balls. It can be pom-poms. I don't care. The hokier, the better. The less digital, the better. People should look at it in a heartbeat and know, are we winning or are we losing? How are we at tracking towards goals? These are kind of simple concepts. As Dr. Covey used to say, common knowledge isn't common practice. He would always talk about the seven habits, you know, to know but not to do is not to know. It sounds religious. Maybe it is. I don't know or care. But I think it's a great methodology around setting wildly important goals is more than being a visionary. And let me share one final thought. I, I think there is a type of leader. It's often the high endurance athlete. It's often the uber successful leader who is a workaholic, who's relentless. And if they win, they lose. I'm going to say it again. If they win, they lose. Meaning if they accomplish the goal, they've lost because the goal was set too low. And I think that is um, a cancer inside some organizations. As a leader, you should be setting stretch goals that require extraordinary effort, that are aspirational, but they have to be accomplishable. And when your team accomplishes them, you have got to invest and spend time acknowledging them, thanking them, rewarding, and celebrating. Set off the confetti, right? Spray the champagne bottle. Go bat you know what crazy. Don't just say great and then get back to the grind. People need to feel like you value accomplishing the goal as much as you did setting it and striving towards it. I'm actually pretty passionate about that because I think too often leaders set goals that are too offy and they crush the um, the confidence of the team. People want to win. And if they can't win working for you, they'll go win working for someone else. Mm-hmm. Sorry, that was a diatribe. Oh no, I dug it all. And I want to get your take for those who are aspiring for leadership positions, but don't have them yet. And, you know, they want to be like you promoted into a management role. How do you get that uh, signaling, that conveying, earning that trust, that confidence such that people think, yes, you know, you are the one who should be a manager now? Can I take four minutes? Oh, sure. (laughs) Uh, First, ask yourself why, right? Why is it you want to move into being a leader of people? I think, like I've said before, people are too often lured into being the team leader for the wrong reasons. You know, lead or be led, right? Either take the job or Pete down the hall is going to be my, going to be my leader tomorrow. And that's a horrifying thought, right? I don't want Pete being my leader. <laughs> so I'm going to, I'm going to step up to the plate, right? I mean, I get it. I get it, but wrong motivation. You know, do you get your validation from seeing other people succeed? I think, I think too often it's the only way to get a career promotion is to move up into leadership. And I think it's a systems misalignment issue, right? I'm not here to tackle the OD industry, but I think people should really question, why do I want to do this? Here's the next thing. I think people try to harvest their careers too soon. That's a broad statement. I said the word people. There's an amazing video that Franklin Covey has in our Seven Habits of Highly Effective People two-day work session. It's an interview we did 25 years ago with this sort of unsophisticated but very smart potato farmer from Iowa. Sorry, from Idaho. And the name of the video is called The Law of the Harvest. And in this sort of eight-minute video, 
this potato farmer says something that changed my life and changed my career. He said, there comes a time when we plant potatoes that we have to rotate the crop, right? Some years we actually plant a money losing crop like alfalfa or whatever it is, and we lose money on it, but it replenishes the soil so desperately and so vitally that allows us to grow bigger potatoes the next year. And I think the metaphor is so wise for our careers. I think too often, including in this younger generation, which I have enormous respect for. I mean, they're going to be my boss in the next five years. So I better shape up and not insult them. And I won't is that too often, I think we try to harvest as opposed to plant. In my career, I have found that patience has rewarded me. Fertilize, water, weed, rake, hoe, fertilize some more. Don't try to harvest too soon. I think in most organizations, leaders will call you when you're ready. Nobody wants to suppress people. We know you'll quit. No one wants to suffocate people. We know you'll quit. No great leader, no mediocre leader is going to pass over you when the timing is right. If the, if, if, if they do, you're working for the wrong organization. But I think you, the question you ask is, you know, how do you know? You know, we've all been in the role where we've, 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 you know, had to kind of, you know, fake our way till we make it. I don't know if that's good or bad. I'm certainly the product of that. But I think if you surround yourself with wiser people than you, I've always practiced this concept I call friending up. When my, when my colleagues were playing beer pong and at the, um, you know, the lake house on the weekends, I was with the boss at his or her family's house picking their brains, right? I've always surrounded myself with people who are older, smarter, wiser, richer, better educated, better traveled, been down the same path. And that always kind of led me into a leadership role probably a little sooner than I should have been, but it certainly had me on the right track. So I would say practice the law of the harvest. Don't try to harvest too soon and surround yourself with leaders that are willing to mentor and coach you and have been down the same path you've been in, have made the mistakes that you could avoid if you're willing to listen and pay attention. Mm, That's excellent. Thank you, Scott. Probably not where you thought I was taking that. Oh, no, no, I could dig it. I could dig it. And uh, we're going to have a quick moment for some of your favorite things. Can you give us a favorite quote? My favorite quote, no surprise, is from Dr. Stephen R. Covey. He said, you can't talk your way out of a problem you behaved yourself into. Mm, Thank you. You can only behave yourself out of that problem. And how about a favorite tool? Oh my gosh, I love electric screwdrivers. And a favorite habit? You know what? I'm really getting into the habit of apologizing without excuses. I've learned that the excuse-free apology is the only apology. So I've gotten into the habit of simply saying, I'm wrong. I apologize. I own it. Mm -hmm. No excuses around it. No defending myself. No trying to make myself look better. Just owning it and apologizing with no attachments. And if folks want to learn more or get in touch, where would you point them? Yeah. So the book site is managementmess.com. You can find me there. You can follow me on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, you name it. I'm kind of hard to miss these days, but managementmess.com is the best place to learn about the book and my future books coming out and how to bring me into an organization. Mm -hmm. And you have a final challenge or call to action for folks seeking to be awesome at their jobs? Stop gossiping. The biggest cancer in organizations is leaders that talk about people behind their backs. 
Dr. Covey called it being loyal to the absent. Only speak about people as if they were standing right next to you, looking at you in the eye. Because when you are loyal to those who are absent, you build confidence and trust to those who are present. There's a person in our company who I have enormous respect for. And this person gossips and trashes everybody. Whenever I'm hearing her, I think, man, what do you say about me? That must be really brutal. So of course she talks about me. How could she not? Why would she, you know, why would she spare me from that? Stop talking about people behind their back. Only talk about them as if they were standing right in front of you, looking at you in the eye. You will transform your brand, your reputation, and the culture of your organization. You can start small just on your team. Hmm. Scott, this has been a lot of fun. Thanks so much and keep up the good work. Thank you, sir. Delighted to be part of your podcast series. Thanks for the interview. I really appreciated Scott's wisdom and I really appreciate our sponsors. Check them out. There's so much good stuff from Scott, but I think the one that's going to stick with me forever is that notion of taking a moment to think about where your lips are and if they are just poised to strike and start talking or if you can move it a millimeter or two so that they're fully closed in a listening posture. A tiny thing that can make a huge impact. Cool stuff from Scott. Get the show notes, the transcript, the links to items we've referenced or at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep464. You can also tap that in your app of choice. We've also got our next guest I'm excited about. It's Valerie Young. She's talking about imposter syndrome, how to conquer that. Until next time, peace. Thanks for listening. To get the most out of the show, we recommend two key things. First, check out the extra resources at awesomeatyourjob.com. You can find this episode's transcript and links, as well as the perfect episode for your situation. You can search the full text transcripts of hundreds of episodes or explore episodes tagged by topic and competency covered. Second, subscribe to the podcast and get future episodes automatically. You can subscribe by telling Siri and several other smartphones and speakers. Subscribe to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast or by tapping subscribe in your podcast player of choice. If you'd like some extra help figuring out podcasts and how subscriptions work, visit awesomeatyourjob.com slash subscribe for guidance. Hope to catch you on the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job.